Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Nearly a year into the pandemic, life is not getting easier for many business owners. And calling it quits can be just as difficult as staying open. I didn't know if I was doing the right thing. You know, I still don't know if we did the right thing. But I just couldn't keep on. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll go inside one Boston restaurant in its last days. And why some want to prioritize energy justice in a clean energy transition. Low to moderate income communities and households face very different challenges. And so our electricity system should actually be supporting them. Plus, how some behavioral programs for at-risk teens could be doing more harm than good. Tough love is really about breaking a child down, removing them from their comfort zone, and attempting to build them back up into a, a more productive, contributing society member. The problem with the programs is they don't always make good on that second part about building someone back up. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. One in four businesses say they will have to close in about six months if economic conditions do not get better. That's according to a survey from the small business group National Federation of Independent Businesses. In recent months, we've heard a lot about how hard it's been for restaurants to stay open in the pandemic. But what we often don't hear is that closing can be just as difficult. The Massachusetts Restaurant Association estimates 3,400 restaurants have gone into hibernation or have gone out of business since the start of the pandemic. Today, we take you inside one of those restaurants, a small cafe in downtown Boston, as it was facing down its final days. Here's WBUR's Adrian Ma. In a lot of ways, it feels like a pretty typical morning at the Kitchen Cafe. Customers trickle in and out of the restaurant, which has a slightly millennial hipster vibe. And the air is filled with the comforting platter of breakfast sandwiches and burritos in the making. Order up. So that's Jamie Valdez. He and his wife own the place. And picture a middle-aged guy with a shock of wavy salt and pepper hair. From behind the counter, he gives the customer an elbow bump. Thank you very much. Like I said, typical day. Except for this. Today is the Kitchen Cafe's very last day of business. So a lot of the customers are here to say goodbye. A few hours later, the last order is rung up, and the final customers shuffle out the door. Jamie plops down on a bench and stares around the room. How do you feel right now? My friend, I, I, I feel relief. We, we feel relief. I've been looking forward to call it done, you know. 
for me to stay open, I need to sell a sandwich for $50. Nobody's going to pay me $50 for a sandwich, but that's my cost right now. They don't have nearly enough sales to pay for rent and insurance and labor. So, yeah, he's relieved to be closing. But of course, this is not what he and his wife envisioned when they moved to Boston in 2016. I was very excited at the beginning. We're buying a restaurant, we're buying a restaurant. But once it gets closer and closer, and then the closing, and, and then here's the key. It was very, very scary. <laughs> like I have, I have memories and I have pictures of days that we didn't have no traffic at all. But before too long, things picked up. The Kitchen Cafe became a go-to spot for office workers and students in the area. And after a few years, Jamie started to feel like, hey, we made it. He figures they averaged about 500 orders a day. There was times that before we opened at 7, we had a line outside already. So, you know, it was, it was great. It was very great. Mid-2019, start seeing um, some extra money in the bank. And by beginning of 2020... We were like, we're over that hump. And then the pandemic happened. You know, there was days during May that when we opened that we literally had 15 checks a whole day. And I have a team of 20 people. You know, I, I, I'm having trouble sleeping just and waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, sitting down on a desk and running numbers just to try to see what I can make different, who I have to let go or who can do the job or two. After a lot of haggling, Jamie says his landlord agreed to temporarily reduce the $8,000 a month rent. But that still didn't solve the bigger problem. A lot of our customers are office people and office people are now working from home. Everybody talks about the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I, we don't know when the light is going to click on or if it's ever going to click on. So they decided to shut it down. It's a few weeks before Christmas, and the restaurant looks completely different. The space is filled with stacks of boxes and chairs and pots and pans and panini presses. Every piece of equipment, every piece of art on the wall, and every jumbo-sized can of beans has to be sold, stored, or junked. The restaurant that took four years to build will take them about two days to clear out. Christmas tree, Christmas tree. And as they work, a playlist made by his wife floats through the cafe speakers. Shine so brightly, each bow does that makes each toy to sparkle bright. How was your holiday? It was great. Uh, not bad. So After the new year, Jamie and I meet back at the cafe one last time. 
And now the place is empty, not even a chair for us to sit in. He says it feels like a foreign space, which is weird. I used to come to my store when I walk in every morning. I'll talk to my store every morning. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Let's have fun. Let's have a good day. You know, um, you know thank you, you know, for, for giving a lot to so many. You know, that's, that's the biggest pride I took. What's the hardest part about being the owner? I think the hardest part as an owner was take the decision to close. I, 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 I didn't know if I was doing the right thing. You know, I still don't know if we did the right thing. But I just couldn't keep on, you know. We were just losing ten, fifteen thousand dollars a month just to keep the kitchen cafe open, waiting to see um, when it's gonna bounce back. Many friends of mine tell me, "Why don't you do um, something different?" You know, in terms of business, instead of restaurant, do you really want to open a restaurant again? I said to them, "I really enjoy the rush of." being busy you know my day goes so fast it's my persona all right see you buddy that story was produced by wbur's adrian ma Reports suggest that President Joe Biden wants to focus on easing the burden of student loan debt. Connecticut's Miguel Cardona, that's Biden's nominee for education secretary, told Connecticut Public Radio's talk show Where We Live that he supports student debt forgiveness. It would be a priority for me. It would be an area of focus that early on we'd have to really make sure that we're coming up with clear support plans and strategies to assist the students in higher education. That could come as a relief for many borrowers in Maine, who carry some of the highest college loan debts in the country. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg has more. For more than 20 years, Lorna Durfee has worked as a nurse, caring for patients in facilities from Pennsylvania to Maine. But about four years ago, she decided she wanted to do more, to train to be a nurse practitioner and work with underserved populations in Midcoast Maine. And my ideal goal was to, you know, get... uh, perhaps maybe down the road working somewhere where I could be in a clinic and help those people who, you know, don't have the money to do it, can only pay a certain fee. And I just saw that there was this inequality in care. Durfee went back to school to get her master's degree. But four years later, she's still trying to complete the degree program. And her student loan bills keep piling up, she says. They now total more than $100,000. It's on my mind every day, 24 hours a day, pretty much. You know, how can I get this done? I need to start working. I need to pay, pay back what I, what I owe. Her story isn't unusual. Two-thirds of Maine's college graduates leave school with loan debt, with an average total close to $34,000. Reports suggest that President Joe Biden could work to relieve some of that burden and potentially call on Congress to cancel $10,000 in federal student loan debt for every borrower, which Nicholas Hillman says could be a big deal. Uh, one in three borrowers nationwide have less than $10,000. So for one in three borrowers, their debts would be cleared. 
Research from Hillman and his team at the University of Wisconsin-Madison shows that cancellation would also reduce loan debt by more than half for another 20% of Maine's borrowers. And Jody Harris, the associate director of the left-leaning Maine Center for Economic Policy, says that canceling debt could be particularly important for borrowers facing financial distress, who may be at risk of defaulting on their loans. She says those borrowers tend to be students who never finished college, but took some classes and left school with five or $10,000 in debt. So I think proposals like this to cancel the first $10,000 of education debt makes a lot of sense uh, because it is really going to be helping those borrowers who struggle the most. A 2018 study from the center found that more than 60% of Maine borrowers have struggled to make payments, and loans had prevented more than a third from being able to afford basic necessities. Lewiston teacher Kennedy Hubbard, who graduated three years ago, says she's had to constantly search for additional work in order to keep up with her loan payments. She says debt cancellation could ease some of that pressure and even help her to save up for a house. Definitely would give me a little bit of boost every month. And maybe I could stop working a second job while school is uh, in session. Some experts have argued that instead of blanket loan forgiveness, the federal government should instead expand existing income-based repayment programs. And some lawmakers have called for even more debt relief, up to $50,000 per person. Whitney Barkley-Denny with the Center for Responsive Lending says that could eliminate student debt for up to 75% of borrowers and make a major impact on racial wealth disparities. When you actually break down the numbers, you find that black borrowers and borrowers of color take on more debt in order to go to school, have a harder time paying it off, and are are really struggling across the board to make those payments on their student loan debt. So we see this as a civil rights issue um, and really as an issue of closing the racial wealth gap. For nurse practitioner student Lorna Durfee, $10,000 would only make a small dent in her total student debt. But she says it could make her situation feel a bit less overwhelming once she finishes school. I think that it would give me, you know, um, some hope and um, that somebody, you know, it's there and I can take it and I can put it towards what I owe. I think that would be significant. But even without immediate cancellation, it appears borrowers won't be responsible for loan payments and interest for at least a few months. As one of his first executive orders, President Biden extended a pause on federal student loan collection through September. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. It's no secret that COVID-19 vaccine rollout has not been smooth for everyone. Some people can't seem to get an appointment, while others are just struggling to reach someone to sign up, like this listener. Hello, my name is Cassie Rodine. I live in Durham, Connecticut. I am approaching my 76th birthday and want to get vaccinated. I cannot get in line. Um, I called the number I was told to call 10 days ago, and they're supposed to call you back, and I have not been called back. And uh, they say to call 211, but you can leave 211 on speaker for four hours, and it's never not busy. That's Kathy Rodine responding to a question we posed to you last week. We asked, how has the COVID vaccine rollout been for you and your loved ones? 
Sneha Jayraj, who is a vaccine coordinator for the Connecticut Department of Public Health, has had better luck. She got her first shot in January. There were two nurses there uh, that were helping me out, and I got the shot on my right arm. Thinking back, I should have got it on my left arm <laughs> because I right hand is my, my dominant hand, and you feel a little bit sore. And then you rest after for 15 minutes so that they know that you are comfortable so you don't have any reactions. I was pretty tired as well. Like I was, I just wanted to sleep really for the next two days because that's just how my body reacted to it. Jayraj says she'll get her next shot in February. Thank you to all of our listeners who shared their thoughts. If you want to tell us about your experience with the vaccination rollout, leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thanks. Coming up, why the lifting of a firewood quarantine has some upset. And we'll hear an argument for a justice-first clean energy transition. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, Supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. President Joe Biden quickly took action on climate change after his inauguration. On day one, he signed an executive order to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. He also revoked the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. And he has called for a review of the Atlantic's only marine national monument. It's off the coast of Cape Cod. Last summer, President Donald Trump opened the Northeast canyons and seamounts to commercial fishing. But the Boston Globe is reporting Biden could overturn that decision. After four years of a president skeptical of both climate change and environmental regulations, Biden's actions are being welcomed by many staffers at the Environmental Protection Agency's New England office. WBUR's Barbara Moran spoke with some of them and has this report. Ask Indina Kipka how she's feeling, and she just keeps laughing. The biggest thing for me personally is relief. (laughs) Kipka is an environmental engineer and union vice president at the EPA's New England office. She says the last four years have been pretty tough. There's probably a little bit of healing (laughs) that needs to happen, too. Um, Traumatized might be a little bit of a strong word for everybody, but um, I certainly, you know, was at the point where I was sort of stealing myself for bad news every single day. (laughs) Kipka says her regional office had it better than others. But still, she says, she and her colleagues worked in a culture of fear during the Trump years worried that raising sensitive topics like climate change or diversity and inclusion training would get them into trouble. I personally did start unintentionally self-centering around climate change, even though I I didn't really want to do that or I wasn't really told specifically to do that. It affected the way I was working and thinking. We're looking forward in particular for climate change and actually being able to talk about it uh, at work. 
Steve Calder is a Clean Air Act inspector and union president at EPA's New England office. He says morale was also low under Trump because of understaffing and overwork. Some younger scientists who wanted to work on climate change left the agency, and older workers near retirement age decided it was time to go. After three decades at the EPA, Calder almost joined them. If Trump had won, I was going to retire on December 31st. Wow, that bad, huh? Oh, yeah. Calder says morale in the office has improved a lot with the new administration. Kipka agrees. You know, the fact that we have uh, a president who says he's going to support the civil service and tackle climate change and take science seriously, those are all good things. She hopes the EPA will expand under Biden and that communities and companies will see her the way she sees herself, as a public servant protecting the environment. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Barbara Moran. A professor from Northeastern University in Boston will join President Joe Biden's Department of Energy. Shalanda Baker has been appointed Deputy Director of Energy Justice. Baker is also the author of the new book, Revolutionary Power, an Activist's Guide to the Energy Transition. She joins us to talk about energy justice and her new role. Professor Baker, welcome to Next. Thank you so much, Morgan. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so great to have you. And you write in your book, Revolutionary Power, that our energy system works against poor people, indigenous people, and black and brown people. Explain what you mean by that. Sure. So we can look around us, right, here in New England and also around the country and very much see that the energy system has disproportionate impacts on communities of color and also low to moderate income communities. And what I mean by that is a couple of things. So first, we see legacy harms of the fossil fuel system impacting communities. So there have been multiple studies showing that black and brown communities and really black communities are more likely to live in the shadows of fossil fuel generation and to be close to fossil fuel generation in general. We also know, based on studies, that communities of color are more likely to pay more of their overall income to meet energy needs. And of course, I'm not even getting into the sort of health and other you know, long-term impacts that folks face as a result of having you know, dirty generation in their communities, as well as the multiple economic impacts that occur when folks are routinely kind of making choices between heating their homes or eating, as, as folks like to say. And for listeners who may not know the term energy justice is like universal access to safe, affordable and sustainable energy and also sharing the cost of the negative impacts of energy, right? Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I also think, you know, bringing the benefits into that equation is also a part of energy justice. So energy justice, in my mind, is the equitable sharing of the benefits and burdens of the system. Is there a specific example here in New England that you could point to that illustrates environmental racism, what we've been talking about? Sure. So there's a community called Chelsea, which is an environmental justice community, um, East Boston as well as you know a neighboring community. And those communities, there are a lot of immigrants from Latin America. They also bear a lot of the pollution from Logan Airport. They store all of the salt for salting roads in uh, the Boston area. 
And they've just sort of been burdened um, again and again by various environmental hazards. And so East Boston is the potential site for a new substation in that community. And it's a, an electrical substation. So as as pollution goes, it's not as devastating as a new fossil fuel generation facility. But that substation would overshadow the kind of only green space in this community. And again, this is a low-income immigrant community with a lot of environmental hazards already. And folks in the, that community and Chelsea really saw that as, you know, piling on to a community that was already burdened. And so here we see climate change on the table. We see energy justice issues on the table. We see environmental justice also on the table. These pieces coming together in a community that has been marginalized. You write that your book is modeling an approach of justice first rather than climate first, justice later. Can you talk about how you would apply this mindset and approach to transitioning our energy sector? Sure. So, you know, I, I really lead with that as my frame in the book, because in my experience, I've seen a lot of well-meaning environmental advocates basically jettison ideas of justice in service of mitigating the harmful impacts of climate change. And so what this looks like is okay, we've got to get as much clean energy on the grid as possible. We've got to, you know, lower our CO2 emissions ASAP. And, you know, when you sort of intervene as a justice advocate or equity advocate and say, well, let's also think about equity as we do that work, the response has often been, we can't think about equity and justice right now. That's too hard. The hard part is getting this technology switched and getting the fuel switched. And so, I say, and I argue in the book, as you mentioned, that we should think about the communities that will be the first and worst impacted by climate change first. And what this would look like is, first of all, including these communities at the table in designing the future energy system. It's also making sure that they have access to life-saving clean energy. They have access to battery storage, for example. We can think about California and the ways in which those wildfires have devastated the state and the ways that the utilities there are permitted by law to preemptively shut off power in certain places. Now think about who will be most impacted, right? Low to moderate income communities and households face very different challenges. And so our electricity system should actually be supporting them. And the ways that we respond to climate change and the way that we design energy policy should make sure that their needs are most visible. So Shalana, you just started a new role as Deputy Director of Energy Justice at the U.S. Department of Energy, as we mentioned at the top. And I'm wondering how you plan to incorporate all the things we've been talking about and what are going to be your top priorities starting out. So my charge as this new Deputy Director for Energy Justice at the DOE is to really move the president's ambitious and transformative agenda to ensure that 40% of all climate investments make it to environmental justice and disadvantaged communities around the country. Energy access and energy burden are going to be key parts of that analysis as I move forward in this work. And details will be forthcoming, but, um, but I think it's fair to say that those are going to be cornerstones of my approach. Your background is so interesting, and I'm wondering if you could just share how did your personal experiences lead you to do this work? You know, I actually never know how to answer that question because I live an, a life that is 
led by my intuition. I was in the military and discharged under the don't ask, don't tell policy. And after that point, which was about 2001, I committed my life to service in pursuit of social justice. And so my lens as a Black woman, as a queer woman of color, has really informed the way I look at every single problem in our society and has informed my work on energy policy for many years. Anyway, there weren't a lot of other people kind of thinking about climate change mitigation strategies in a critical way and really sounding the alarms around the ways in which our approaches could replicate harms. And I do think that, you know, folks who have unique lived experiences like myself are uniquely positioned to be critical of our obvious approaches to these issues. I mean, I don't know that someone who had walked a different path would be able to provide this sort of analysis, but it is, you know, one that is just obvious for me based on my own experience in the world. You mentioned approaches that could replicate harm. You you argue that, yeah, we need to transition to clean energy, but we can't just keep the same exact energy infrastructure and structure that we have right now in place, which, as we've talked about, can often mean putting energy infrastructure in communities of color and disproportionately impacting communities of color and low-income communities. I mean, it sounds like a daunting lift to completely reimagine not just the type of energy we're using, but the infrastructure that we're using. And does that feel daunting to you or exciting? Or how would you classify that? Oh my gosh, Morgan, it is so exciting to me. It's not daunting at all. And the fact is we're already doing it. We have sort of a mandate to do that due to the climate change emergency. We not only have an obligation and a mandate to create this transformative and transformed energy system, But we also have an opportunity to transform our energy system in service of those who have been so harmed by it historically. And so to me, to kind of move forward in this energy transition and energy transformation without doing that would be a missed opportunity and it would be tragic. I'm excited about my new role. um, And I think we have such a moment of opportunity to really make an energy system that serves all of us and to help contribute to a better climate future for all people in the society. Shalanda Baker is Deputy Director for Energy Justice at the U.S. Department of Energy and the author of the new book, Revolutionary Power, An Activist's Guide to the Energy Transition. She was previously a professor at Northeastern University in Boston. Professor Baker, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Morgan. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. The federal government has lifted a quarantine on an invasive insect, the emerald ash borer, that's killed many ash trees across New England, particularly in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Hampshire. But critics of the change have been more vocal outside those states. New England Public Media's Alden Bourne reports. The emerald ash borer was first discovered in the U.S. in 2002 in Michigan. The federal government soon instituted a quarantine there on ash products, which restricted their movement unless the wood had been treated first. The quarantine zone spread as the bug infested more states, and with good reason. The insect can kill ash trees within three to five years. Adults will lay their eggs on the bark, and those eggs will hatch, and the larvae will bore beneath the bark and feed in the nutrient-rich layer. Tawny Samiski is an entomologist at UMass Amherst. 
And so it's that feeding that causes tunneling, which will effectively girdle the ash trees that leads to their mortality. In 2012, the emerald ash borer was found in the Berkshires and in Connecticut near Waterbury. It had spread to 31 states by 2018, including all of New England. That's when the federal government proposed eliminating the quarantine, which officially ended a couple of weeks ago. The USDA says the quarantine strategy has been ineffective and wants to focus its resources on deploying a natural enemy to kill the ash borer, parasitic wasps. Again, Tammy Samiski. The wasps essentially lay their eggs either in or on emerald ash borer eggs or larvae, and the wasp eggs will hatch and then the young wasps will kill the emerald ash borer through their own development. Dave Orwig is an ecologist for the Harvard Forest in western Worcester County. He says the ash borer has been found nearby, but not in the university's research forest yet. He says he thinks the government's decision to lift the ban makes sense in a place like Massachusetts. It's throughout the state, so the quarantine is effectively not useful right now. If I'm in a state like Maine that only has infested ash that we know of in the southern part and in the northern part, You'd want to try to continue to slow the spread of those materials. And in fact, the Maine Forest Service lodged a strong protest against the lifting of the quarantine. The agency wrote a letter to the USDA saying the timing could not be worse and that the federal government was throwing in the towel. Tom Doak is the former director of the service and now leads the Maine Woodland Owners Association. I understand the concern is that spending a lot of time and effort on something that ultimately will not prevent the spread because these insects are mobile and they fly well. And so I think everybody understands they will spread. But buying that time could be absolutely critical. In early January, Maine issued an emergency order creating a state quarantine on the importation of ashwood, which basically replicates the restrictions of the federal one. And all New England states have policies that either prohibit or discourage out-of-state firewood. So even though the federal quarantine is over, UMass entomologist Tawny Samiski says people still need to do their part. This could mean not bringing firewood from Massachusetts with you when you go in better days to Maine to camp, (laughs) you know. Uh, So I think keeping that sort of stuff local and limiting the spread of potentially infested ash trees, that's still very important. The ash borer probably can't be stopped. But between campers doing the right thing and the wasps doing their part, perhaps America's ash trees have a fighting chance. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Coming up, do behavioral treatment programs for at-risk teens do more harm than good? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. Our final guest today is journalist Kenneth R. Rosen. He's the author of the new book, Troubled, The Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs. He writes that many programs geared toward changing the behavior of quote-unquote troubled teens often do more harm than good. The book focuses on the experiences of four teens and himself. From the moment he was taken from his room in the middle of the night and put in the first of three programs till now. Ken splits his time between Massachusetts and Italy and joins us now from Italy. Ken, welcome to Next. Morgan, thanks for having me. I'm excited. 
So the stated intention of these wilderness programs and treatment facilities is to change behavior through, I guess, tough love. But what exactly does tough love look like in these programs? Yeah, tough love takes a lot of different forms. On its most basic, it's physical abuse, physical shunning. We're talking about isolating children in solitary rooms, isolating them from their peers, restraining them, or sedating them with drugs. Generally, broadly speaking, tough love is really about breaking a child down, removing them from their comfort zone, and attempting to build them back up into a a more productive, contributing society member. The problem with the programs is they don't always make good on that second part about building someone back up. And roughly how many people are going through these programs in the U.S.? And what do we mean by like a troubled teen? Sure. It's it's really hard to quantify because a lot of the reporting on these programs is below the table. It's really hard to figure out sort of who's in the programs, what states they come from. But what I was able to figure out during the course of my reporting, uh, it's around ten to 15,000 a year. There's probably more, probably much more. It's just really hard to quantify and to really track down. And I think troubled teen is a real misnomer here because it labels children who have been on a path of deviance or a a little rebellious streak as people with chronic issues. Now, I don't want to misconstrue the fact that there are people at these programs who do need medical attention, who do need therapeutic attention. But by and large, the broad strokes that are applied to all the clients within these programs doesn't necessarily fit the caseloads that they have. So to call someone troubled, I found, was really a a self-fulfilling prophecy later in life. Many of the clients who graduated and left these programs ended up being very much troubled into their early adulthood and mid-20s and then early 30s as a result of these programs. The programs will say that the kids were already troubled to begin with and that they tried their best but failed. But it seems that a lot of the memories from these programs, the abuse we talked about earlier, the ostracizing they felt after leaving their community and not being welcomed back, really did uh, reverberate into their future lives. Yeah, so I want to talk more about that later. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your experience, the way you describe it in the book, you were essentially kidnapped from your home as a teenager. That was March 2007. Describe what happened. I had spent the previous few nights out at friend's house sleeping on couches, sleeping in cars. I think in one instance, I was sleeping outside, uh, just not wanting to come back home, not wanting to go to school. Um, I had taken my mother's car out for a joyride. I had used drugs recreationally, had drank alcohol recreationally. And on the one night that I decided to come home to the house where my mother and sister lived, my parents had gone through a divorce about a year earlier, or were in the middle of a divorce then. And I went to sleep in my bed, only to be awoken at around 2.15 in the morning by two fairly large men. They asked me if I wanted to do this the easy way or the hard way. I think I must have moved a certain way or like shown that I wanted to fight back because I was immediately restrained. One of them put a knee into my back and, and restrained my hands and gave me my clothes and said, you got to come with us and don't make a fuss over it. And they transported me nine hours north from New Jersey to upstate New York, where I was admitted to a wilderness program. I got to say, I had never heard of this, you know, kidnapping tactic. But based on your reporting, this isn't just like a one-off experience. This is common for teens to be taken in, in the night and brought to behavioral programs. What is the reasoning behind doing it like that? 
It's really funny that there's like two distinct camps. There are people who have never heard of this and it's like really shocking to them, right? Like, how could this be happening? And it's been happening since the 80s. And then there are those who are like, oh, yeah, I remember so-and-so from high school who like disappeared one day and we never knew what happened to them. And then we found out years later they went to these very strange programs. The idea behind it is the so-called triple teen is so off the rails that they would never want to go to therapy willingly. That in order to get them into such a program, to get them into the care that they need, they need to be taken without a moment's notice, without warning. The problem with that is I am not convinced that forcing someone into therapy is the best way for them to enact change, right? We see it time and again with more traditional forms of therapy, with AA and NA. You have to be willing to change. You have to want that change. You have to have a moment of self-reflection and say, I, this doesn't work for me anymore. Unfortunately, the parents who decide to send their kids away to these programs are often coached by education consultants or therapists or school officials into thinking that this is the best and only way to get them into treatment. More broadly speaking, a lot of the programs, or which I mentioned in Troubled, most kids were either deceived into going, said they were going on a shopping trip or they were going to Disney World or some other such lie or were taken. Yeah, so you went through what was kind of the recommended or typical trajectory in the system, right? It's like you started a wilderness camp, then you're in a residential facility, and then finally you were in a lockdown facility. Can you just describe the difference between these facilities? So it's meant to gradually reintroduce a client into society. So you start with the wilderness and it's bare necessities, right? You have everything in your backpack. You are introduced to therapeutic language where, you know, working the program, working the steps, and then you graduate, hopefully, after, you know, 28 days, 30 days, 60 days, sometimes 70 days, depending on how slow you are to accept the program. And based on how you were in wilderness, they'll decide on what program fits your criteria of treatment, whether you require a more severe level of treatment, whether you require sort of a lesser severe kind of treatment, which would be a therapeutic boarding school. So it's very much like any other boarding school, except with these added components of, you know, abuse, harassment, sedation. A lot of times, people didn't make it through that program successfully. Sometimes they just couldn't adhere to the rules, Some merely just didn't want to do the work and were relegated to go back to wilderness because they refused to participate in the program. And from there, they were sent to what I refer to as lockdown facilities, residential treatment centers, ranches, the more strict sort of military-like programs in this long trajectory of homebound youth. I'm talking to Ken Rosen, author of the new book, Troubled, The Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs. And a warning, in the second half of this conversation, there will be references to suicide and drug overdose. Now, Ken, these programs, I think one of the things that is really striking is that they're generally unregulated, they're often not staffed by mental health professionals, and they use unproven techniques, according to your reporting. Plus, they're really expensive. So you describe all these experiences and scenarios, and it just leaves me wondering, why are parents sending their kids there? I think a lot of parents have been misled to thinking the efficacy of these programs is very high. They believe the brochures, they believe everything they're being told, that this one option is the thing that's going to save their child, and they're willing to turn their pockets out without question. 
There has been some instances of people believing that these are programs only for the privileged. I make that very clear in my book that it's not the case. Some people are in foster care. Some people are court-ordered. Some people are taking second and third mortgages out on their homes in order to afford it. But the parents, through no fault of their own, believe that this is the only option, that it's gotten so bad and the only thing they can do to better their child's future is to send them to these programs. Hmm. You say in the book that you used to think these programs are fine. What was that moment where your thinking changed? So I decided to meet with a lot of the former clients that I went to these programs with before branching out to other program clients and sort of pulling the thread and seeing who else was willing to speak with me about their time and all these different programs. And I was sitting in these interviews, you know, in ramshackle apartments, in trailers, in uh, hotel rooms, and everyone would tell me their story. And I just would like sit there and hear my own story being told to me, right? The way a lot of these former clients were articulating themselves really made me connect with things that I wasn't clear on in my ascent into adulthood, right? Why I had so many toxic relationships, why I was struggling with alcoholism and depression and anxiety, and why I couldn't seem to necessarily connect with my parents quite well. And um, I walked away from it feeling very cathartic and learning much more about myself than I had intended to. Yeah, there's um, this passage in your book, which really, I guess, drilled it in for me. I just want to read a couple of examples. When you're talking about finding out what happened to a number of the people who were in these treatment facilities, you say Alden, 23, suicide by self-inflicted gunshot. William, 26, stroke-induced by heart failure attributed to years of intravenous opiate use. Um, Fentanyl overdose. There's people who are in prison. I mean, it's not a happy list at all. I mean, how do you square that for yourself? Because as you write in the book, after you were in the lockdown facility, you spent time in juvenile detention for attempted armed robbery, and then later you were in county jail. But since then, you've worked for the New York Times for six years. Now you work for Newsweek and have written a book. Do you see yourself as like a lucky one? Yeah, I think a lucky one's a good way to put it. I mean, I certainly I certainly understand those those who you listed who are dead. I understand where they're coming from. I feel I felt like I was at the end of my rope for a long time, and sometimes I still do. Um, you know, my success now didn't come without a price. Like you mentioned a few instances, I can't speak about all the problems that I had going into my mid and late 20s, but there was it wasn't an easy road. It was very difficult. I had a lot of problems and I still feel the reverberations of those problems. But I fought against it and you know, I had a really good support network and I lucked out with where I ended up professionally. I worked really hard, but you know, a lot of the time as you know, this this is about luck and I just don't feel like I'm exemplary. You know, I'm the exception, not the rule. There are enough people who I mentioned in the book who support the thesis of the book to suggest that these programs really did mess a lot of people up. And even the ones of us, the few of us who are successful still struggle with uh, latent depression, you know, suicidal tendencies. So it's sort of an ongoing struggle. Yeah. Do you think there are any positive things to be gained from these types of programs? I've been less critical of wilderness in, in, in the past because I felt as though most of the stories I've heard of people who just went to wilderness, especially those who went willingly to wilderness and then went home 
maybe after 28 days, 40 days, that was a beneficial experience to people. I think the long-term effects of being, you know, ostracized from your community, from your friend group, made to feel unrelevant, made to not understand any cultural references, right? You're like, you're like stripped of all of this knowledge. And I think the, the, the good of the programs more broadly, I guess now that all the abuse charges are coming out and uh, all these, all these um, young adults are willing to share their stories, is that we can really turn the attention back to the family unit and try to work on that and figure out where the communication breaks down in a family to lead a child astray. Obviously, there are still programs out there like this today why aren't they better regulated, especially if there are people coming forward talking about the abuse they say they've experienced? The industry has a powerful lobby. They've always said this is an isolated incident. We've conducted our investigation. We didn't find anything. And then there are the states that have very permissive and lax regulating bodies who are not very strict at vetting the employees of these programs, who are not strict in granting licenses or, you know, checking in on the programs and making sure there's a transparency of reporting on the programs and who's attending them. And lastly, I think I've failed to mention, too, that when parents send their children away, at least in my experience and some of the stories that were told and relayed to me, one of the first things parents are briefed on is that, look, your son or daughter is going to say that they're being abused, that they're not being fed, that they're not being provided with the right shelter, that they're being placed in solitary. And we want you to know that's not true. Don't believe it. They're trying to manipulate you. And then from there, it's sort of, you know, a zero-sum game for the kids. Ken, I just want to thank you so much for coming on Next. I really appreciate your time. Morgan, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving time and attention to this. Journalist Kenneth R. Rosen is the author of the new book, Troubled, The Failed Promise of America's Behavioral Treatment Programs. He splits his time between Massachusetts and Italy. If you or a loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts, you can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. And that's a wrap on Next This Week. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Publix Radio. 